This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hi, SYSK friends. It's me, Josh. And for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen How Lewis and Clark Worked, a great episode from 2013. It reveals that the famed expedition could have changed the history of relations between Native Americans and European Americans, but sadly, the European Americans in charge ended up going a different way. I hope you enjoy this eye-opening episode about what could have been, starting now. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Lewis? Bryant. Yep. I thought you were going to call me Lewis. Yeah, I thought. Uh, yeah. You know, like I thought about it. You like not chuckle through that dumb joke. <laughs> I, won- I wondered if I was related to um, Mr. Clark. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm just going to say I am from now on. I feel like, have you heard of William Clark, the explorer? Lewis and Clark? Yeah. Well, I'm Josh Clark. Yeah, because Clark's an unusual name. You might be. It's, it's not, <laughs> no, but I mean, like, his family uh, was from the Ohio River Valley. I grew up in Toledo. Hey, there you go. I wonder. You have an explorer spirit. You're a laid-back guy. Yeah. He was laid-back. Yeah. Not like Lewis. He was semi-literate. <laughs> yeah. I'm fairly literate. Yeah. That's the big distinction. It right. is funny. Like, have you read some of his verbatim journal entries? Who, Clark's or Lewis's? Well, both of them, but Clark's way worse. Uh, yeah, Lewis is a pretty good writer, I thought. Yeah, but he had some weird spellings, too. Clark was just like frontier Kentucky boy yeah. writing in a journal. Yeah, they were a good pair, though. Yeah. And this isn't one of those podcasts where or stories where you look back and you're like, oh, you know, history's really pumped this up, and they were really kind of like this and like, jerks and no no they, this is really a great story and they were actually true american heroes <laughs> you know yeah one semi-tragic i would say well the ending is pretty tragic no but lewis lewis is manic depressive yeah by all accounts yeah back then they called it prone to you know prone to fits <laughs> <laughs> but modern people say no he was probably manic depressive right uh and I prepped by watching the four-hour Ken Burns documentary last night. Four hours? Yeah, I thought it was two hours. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got this. Yeah. And then I got to uh, the two-hour point, and I was like, wait a minute. They just hit the Continental Divide. I don't think I'm at the end. That's so funny because in the email, you 
you emailed me to mm-hmm. suggest that I watch it. You called it a six-part, not four-hour. Well, they had it on YouTube in six parts, right. but in actuality, it's 12 parts. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right, so let's do this. This is one of my favorite stories in history. Is it really? Yeah, man. And again, I've said this before, why isn't this a movie? Like a really good movie, not the... Uh, have you seen Almost Heroes? Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no. All right, so Chuck, um, Lewis and Clark, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark. Yeah. Pair of um, army folk turned explorers thanks to a little bit of, um, I guess, serendipity. It, it would have been somebody else had it not been these guys because really the sure. whole idea of this expedition, which was called the um, Corps of Discovery. Yes. It sounds like a soccer team. Um, it was it was the brainchild of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, and the brainchild of TJ because he's like, hey, I just bought, I just doubled the size of our country right. by buying a bunch of land from Napoleon. Do you know the, the background on that? The Louisiana Purchase? Yeah. I know it's the greatest land deal in the history of the world, probably. Yeah. But what, what do you mean? Well, it was the French's land, and they were about to get it from, they were about to get it, give it to the Spanish? Well, the Spanish were west of them, so probably. And the French, like, had barely any presence in this area, but yeah. it was their land. But the Spanish, had they taken over, they would have been a real problem because the Americans had access to the port of New Orleans because the French were basically absentee landlords there. Yeah. And so the idea that the Spaniards were about to get it, that was a big problem. So Jefferson sent some people over to France to try to negotiate something. Right. And it turned out Napoleon was having all sorts of problems, and it had been recommended to him by his people, like, just sell it to the Americans. They're coming over. They want to talk. So... I think James Monroe was sent by Thomas Jefferson with the a limit of $10 million to do something, to yeah. buy Florida and New Orleans or New Orleans for up to $10 million. Yeah. Monroe found out he could get all of the Louisiana territory, which went up to Canada. Yeah, Louisiana is really undersells it. It was... It went from the Rockies all the way over to the colonies. Yeah. And then up to Canada and down to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, it was... a doubled the size of our country yeah overnight he, so monroe was like uh i'll give you 15 million dollars for it and the french were like yeah. sold so he, he bought eight hundred and twenty-seven thousand square miles of north america yeah about three cents an acre and uh that was a chunk of change though i think that was double what our uh our gross economy was at the time but it's a pretty good investment that's a great investment yeah could you imagine though how weird that would be if if it had gone a different way, the United States could have ended it about the Mississippi River, which it did at the time. Yeah. And just beyond that, on the other side, it could have been Spain. Right. Or not Spain, but you know what I mean. A Spanish colony. Well, it could have been a lot like um, Africa, you know, like yeah. all of these former colonies that are just like adjacent to one another. But this was a French colony. This was a Belgian colony. This was a British yeah. colony. And I think the Brits controlled Canada and like the Oregon Territory at the time. Yes. Um yeah, we were all sandwiched kind of in there together. Yep. So we buy from the French. We go fight the Spanish for the rest of it. And uh, in between all of this, we send Lewis and Clark to go check out what had just been bought. And this expedition was going to happen anyway, but we thought that we were going to have to ask for permission to go through this area. Right. But now, all of a sudden, it was America. 
And that added a facet to this expedition that hadn't been there before, which was basically informing the Indians that they were now living in America, and they had um, a new great father, which yeah. is how Meriwether Lewis put it. How he uh, described T.J.? Yeah, you have a new great father who lives in a lodge in Washington, D.C., and yeah. you can come visit him and see like how great it'll be to live under his patronage. But not really. <laughs> right. Sign this treaty. Uh, so uh, he named, he was his private secretary, Lewis was, his kind of personal aide. And he knew what kind of dude he was, maybe drank a little too much, was prone to depression. But he, he sort of gave him this job to help him out he thought he'd be good for it. Don't get me wrong. Right, he groomed him for the position. But yeah, he he thought it would be. He had he had a vested interest in the man, and he's like, this this is gonna be really good for Lewis. This is what he needs. Right. He's twenty nine years old, which is remarkable to me. Uh, good sharpshooter. He said, "You pick your partner." He picked William Clark, who was his former uh, captain, I believe, in the army. A couple of years older, and he looked up to Clark quite a bit. Right. He was like, "I need you, brother, because you." Uh, compliment you complete me <laughs> right which by the way we should probably say there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that lewis and clark were ever gay clark definitely was wasn't that, is that a rumor yeah there's a lot of conjecture about really meriwether lewis was he courted several women and was rejected by all of them he was a total eligible bachelor never married never was engaged or betrothed or anything so of course as time wore on, people were like, "Well, he must have been gay." I'd and never heard been that. A, yeah, there's been a lot of um, a lot of conjecture, and they they've come up with the idea that he probably wasn't gay, but that he was um, bi. <laughs> no, <laughs> that he had um, something of an aversion to women that was not necessarily based on any kind of sexual orientation. Huh. He just didn't know what he was doing, and he didn't feel comfortable around women. Yeah, and we'll get to that. Um, the main goal. Well, there were a couple of main goals. The main goal for Jefferson was, hey, I want to find this all-water route to the sea. That's really important for trade. Right. And also, hey, let's check out this thing we just bought right. and go out and record as much of it as you can. Animals, plants, people. Uh, what the heck is out there, basically? Come back and tell us. <clears throat> right, and Lewis wasn't exactly a slouch when it came to this kind of stuff. His mother was a um, celebrated herb doctor. Um, in oh, yeah. Virginia, yeah, she knew what she was doing, and um, she kind of raised him in the woods. So he was he was pretty good at botany, but to just kind of further his education and not just that, but all sorts of other things that would come in handy on the expedition. Jefferson sent him to the American Philosophical Association, which was the first learned society in North America, and basically he underwent this like grueling crash course of. Everything from astronomy to cartography to geology, medical training, everything, everything you could, you would need. They basically just filled Lewis's head with, and he in turn filled Clark in on a lot of it too. Yeah, also a lot of what they might encounter in ways of uh, we'll call them Indians for the purposes of this show because that's what they call them. Right, and Jefferson was like, and don't forget to call me the Great Father. It's awesome. <laughs> so um, Lewis is in. Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia getting this training. He writes to Clark, says, please join me on this. And you were my captain. I'm a captain now. We're going to be co-captains on this. Yeah. Just so there's not any kind of weirdness or anything like that. Like I'm, I was chosen to lead the expedition, but I'm choosing you for help. But let's do this evenly, which is unheard of. Yeah. And it actually, even more unheard of, it worked out really well. 
Yeah, it did. Like there wasn't any kind of like backbiting or no. problems. And it, they actually ran it a bit like a democracy too. Yeah, in the end, um, the they were kind of described as a family, like really, really tight-knit. I, I kept waiting for the story to go off the rails, right. but it didn't. They really hung together and stuck together yep. after some initial discipline problems. Once they kind of weeded out... I think from summer to fall, they kind of weeded out some of the the bad apples. Well, what's funny, one guy got um, discharged for mutinous acts. Yeah. And another guy got discharged for desertion. But they they this happened in the middle of the, the first leg of the trip. So they had to stay on <laughs> until oh, really? they could get them to a place where they could go back. Huh. So they just had them doing hard labor the whole time. <laughs> wow. Uh so um, they brought along a couple of people of note. Uh, one, Clark took his slave York that he had had since he was a kid. Yeah. He was the only, uh, only black guy and only slave on the, uh, on the party. Right. On the adventure party, we'll call it. <laughs> he, was, um, he was technically a manservant, I guess, like a valet or something like that to Clark outside of the expedition but on the expedition york was um basically just a, a member of the party yeah he was a member of the party um he played a really great role in diplomacy because uh the american indian was had never seen uh black people before and they didn't have hang-ups obviously like white people did so they're like this guy is awesome he's huge and he's strong and Look at that like amazing black skin that's even darker than ours. Like they really thought he was great. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm sure all the white people on the thing were like, well, yeah, you hey, know. Look at me. Look at what about me? Yeah. My pale white skin. I'm friends with the great father. But he played a great role in diplomacy. Um and like you said was generally treated pretty well um although he did get sort of sort of some of the crap duties. Well, plus he also got royally screwed over at the end of the expedition. Oh yeah, we'll get to that though. Okay. Uh, and so we have York with Clark, and then um, Lewis purchased a dog for $20 named Seaman. And they used to think it was scanning because they, these guys' um, handwriting was so bad that for oh, really? a, a, yeah, basically a century, like everybody thought it was scanning for oh, two scanning. centuries. And then somebody figured out, well, wait a minute, why is one of these rivers called Seaman's Creek? Right. And then they realized, wait. That's the dog. That's the dog. Everybody, by the way, had something named after them. And they had trouble coming up with names for everything. Like York, the York Islands of Montana, like everybody on that tour had something named after them, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, so he was a Newfoundland dog, and he made it the whole way. We're happy to go ahead and spoil that one. Yeah. Which is great, because they ate dogs, by the way, at some point on this trip. They ate a lot of horse. Uh, yeah, they did. So, like you said, they started in Pittsburgh, but the official start... Uh, was really in St. Louis uh, in December of um, 1803. And they were like, all right, let's hit the river, the Missouri River. Well, that's where they assembled camp and wintered oh, that's right. St. Louis and they assembled started, all their people and ran them through like army training and yeah. then took the best of the best. They officially started in May, the following spring. Of course, you wouldn't start in the winter. Right. Uh, so they had a big keelboat and a couple of smaller canoes and said, let's hit the river. And they did so. They said, let's do it. Because, again, ultimately, Jefferson was looking for a northwest passage across the continent to the Pacific, and he wanted to see if you could basically ride a river all the way across the country. Yeah. uh, By the time, I think there were about 45 people at first, but when they eventually whittled it down, the official Corps of Discovery was 33 people. Right. So they, they head out, and they start going upstream 
up the Missouri River. And it was rough going at first. Yeah. And like they, literally pulling their boat out from outside the water, waist deep by tow rope mm-hmm. against the current. Again, yeah, they're going upstream the whole way to the source of the Missouri River. Yeah. So the first Indians they encountered, uh, well, not the first, the first uh, situation they encountered were the Teton Sioux <laughs> or the Lakota. And they're actually warned by previous American Indians, like, watch out for these guys. They're basically the mafia of the Missouri River. Oh, yeah. Like, they'll demand payment. They won't, uh, they'll take your goods. They'll control the trade. Yeah, they wanted them to trade exclusively with them. Yeah, and they had done this to the French and the Spanish for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, I think Lewis called them the pirates of the Missouri. But um, when they did reach them, it came to a standoff over a canoe that they, they gave them their gifts. The first thing they would do whenever they encountered a new tribe was to like give them these trinkets, tell them about the great father, mm-hmm. uh, give them like handkerchiefs and things like we come in peace. And um, with, with the Teton Sioux though, there was a standoff over a canoe that they wanted and they were like, we're not giving you this canoe. And it literally came to a point where guns were raised and like hundreds of Indians had their arrows pointed at them and it was about to go down. And uh, Chief Black uh, Buffalo intervened. I was like, you know what? Let our women and children tour your really cool boat that we've never seen and meet all you guys, and then y'all can have safe passage. So they managed to get through there unscathed, but that was their first, like, run-in where they were like, man, this could go down pretty badly. Yeah. And luckily that was one of just a few. I think as far as cross-country unchartered expeditions, yeah, uncharted expeditions go... This went about as good as you could possibly hope for. Yeah, I mean, it was super peaceful. Um, they were the core the of discoveries part. rather yeah, think- <laughs> than the core of bloodshed or something. Well, they only shot one bullet in anger the entire trip. Is that right? It's pretty remarkable. Man, that is neat. Uh, so they hit the Great Plains, and that might as well have been Mars to them. Um, if you think about it, if you'd never been west of, I think there's a saying that a squirrel can jump from tree to tree till it hits the Mississippi. Oh, yeah. And so when they hit the Great Plains, they had never seen anything like it. Like, there were no trees. It's just plains. It's just plains. And it was just, you know, they were absolutely blown away by this. And uh, there they encountered the Mandan and Minotauri, or Hidatsa, Indians. Right. And they decided, all right, this is a pretty good place to build a camp, stay here for a few months. And they built Fort Mandan, which they named after the local, uh, one of the local tribes. And... um, and they were buddies. They had like lived together in harmony. Right. They got they they forged friendships. They were visited by locals, and uh, something big happened here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Chuck, so we're at Fort Mandan. Yeah. Which is where in South Dakota, I think. Yeah, it's in the Dakotas. They were having a good time, hanging out, having lots of sex with the local ladies. Yeah, there was a big problem with uh, venereal disease on yeah. the expedition because like, they were having a lot of sex with Indians. And sure. the Indians um, had syphilis, which was something that was unknown to Europeans. Yeah. And uh, Europeans contracted it very easily. So that was a big thing. Well, that was another thing about Lewis, too. Apparently, like, everybody else on the expedition oh, was he not? had sex with Indian women, and he was, like, he he stayed away from it. His journal entries about, like, Indian sexual practices <laughs> were very, like, Interesting. snide, I think is a way one person put it. Um, yeah, it was just, he was an odd duck, I get. What if he tried to put on, though, that he was just, you know, cleaning up, and they were like, uh, Lewis, it doesn't hurt when he pees. Like something's going on. <laughs> right. it, it doesn't burn. <laughs> right. I don't think he's having sex. He's an outlaw. No, he says he had sex with all those women. Right, yeah. Well, burns when I pee. Is it burn when you pee? Right. Doesn't burn when Lewis pees. <laughs> yeah. So apparently burning when you pee like was a big thing on, sure. on this that core of discoveries, discovered syphilis too. Uh, all right. So the other important thing that happened here, which is I think what you were getting to, was they hired a French-Canadian uh, trapper named... Toussaint Charbonneau, but they really, what they were doing was hiring his wife. Yeah, Sakagawea. Sakagawe or Sakagawea. I didn't mispronounce it. You didn't mispronounce it. There's a lot of pronunciations. Yeah, but there's only one that's right. And the right one is based on the journal entries of Lewis, Clark, everybody else on the expedition. Because this was an expedition. Everyone was expected to, like, make notes and, and yeah, they were all write journaling. this stuff down. Right. Yeah. And... Sakagawea is mentioned dozens of times in these journals because she did do some outstanding stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's mentioned phonetically. So it's Sakagawea. Yeah. Also, at some point, it's also mentioned that her name is Shoshone for bird woman. Yeah. And in Shoshone, Sakaga is bird and Wea is woman. So it's Sakagawea, not Sakagawea. That's right. Well, I mean, that's a big point. It's true. Although in the Ken Burns thing, these historians all pronounced it differently. Yeah. Which was sort of frustrating. Well, yeah, there's Sakakaweka. Yeah. And then Sakajawea. Yeah, one of the ladies called her straight up Sakajawea. And I was like, how Straight up Sakajawea? Straight up. So uh, she was very important because, A, she was uh, a translator. 
B, she was essentially a white flag everywhere they went. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we said this, but by the time they broke camp to leave, she had a baby. Yeah, she actually gave birth to her first child um, in Fort Mandon. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Yeah, who was pretty cool, grew up to be pretty cool. Yeah. For sure. But Sacagawea, if we say Sacagawea too, I think that's fair. Okay. <laughs> she... Um, she was 16 at the time, and she was married to Charbonneau. She yeah. was one of two of his wives. Um, and I didn't hear anything about the other um, I didn't either. Shoshone woman. Did she not go along or I don't think so. Okay, all right. So um, she, Jean-Baptiste, and Toussaint were a family, even though Sacagawea was Toussaint's slave wife. Like, he purchased her. Yeah, yeah. But she was Shoshone, and the reason why she was so valuable is because... The expedition leaders had found out that the Shoshone were known for their horsing abilities. Yeah. And for the expedition around. had two horses yeah. that they set out with and were like, we're going to need a lot more. Sure, at so some point. we need to trade with the Shoshone when we make it to the Rockies, and we will need this woman. And she comes in handy to a spectacular degree in this sense. Yeah, and not only was she a white flag, she was just great for the spirit of the camp to have a woman there. Yeah. Uh, and the baby was a, a charmer too. Oh, of course. You know, you can't pull up with a woman and a baby and say, like, we're warring people. Exactly. You know? Apparently, across all tribes along the plains, if you have a woman and a baby in your party, you're automatically not a war party, and therefore you come in peace. Yeah, and she was also pretty awesome. Uh, Charbonneau himself was described as quite average. Yeah. But Sacagawe was the real deal. Like, one of the bravest members of the expedition, and at one point, one of the boats overturned, and they lost, were losing a lot of their important records and things, mm-hmm. and she was the main one that was like, boom, in the water, right. retrieving the stuff. Yeah. While Charbonneau was, I don't know what he was doing. Oh, who knows what Charbonneau <laughs> was doing. But Sacagawea was swimming, retrieving the stuff. This is after she'd given birth. This is while she's breastfeeding, walking scores of miles in, in any given week. She was pretty tough. Yeah, and you know, we'll go ahead and spoil this. That baby, like we said, lived. It made it all the way there and back. Mm-hmm. This brand new baby, uh, Till the age of about, I guess, two and a half. And he just stole William Clark's heart. Yeah, he loved him. He um, ended up adopting him. He did. Yeah. He adopted him and educated him in St. Louis. Yeah, after she died. Yeah. He adopted both her kids. Yeah. Much later. So, um, but yeah, his name was Jean-Baptiste the, the baby, and he was nicknamed Pompey because of his pompous little dancing antics. Right. Clark found him <laughs> to be quite the little dancer. Um, so... The, the other way that Sacagawea was um, helpful to this expedition was that she was a translator. She could speak um, Shoshone, obviously. Yeah. Um, she could also speak uh, Hidata. Mm-hmm. And so her husband could speak Hidata. So if she was speaking to a Shoshone, let's say they encountered a Shoshone person. Yeah. The Shoshone would speak to Sacagawea. Yeah. She would say what they said in Hidata to her husband. Yeah. Her husband would say in French what had just been said yeah. in Hidata yeah. to another man who would in turn tell William and uh, Meriwether what had been said in English. Yeah. That was the translation line. Yeah. And Sacagawea was the pivotal point of this as far as speaking to um, Plains tribes went. 
Yeah, and you would think that's setting it up to say, and like big problems arose because of it, but it really worked pretty well. No, because they were also trained in plain sign language too. Apparently there was a lot of um, gesturing that was fairly universal that a lot of the people who were recruited in St. Louis originally were familiar with too. Yeah. So they got along pretty well. They did. Okay. Uh, All right, so... After the Mandan villages, they broke uh, camp and went on um, to the confluence of the Yellowstone with the Missouri and entered a land where they started seeing, like, when they hit the plains, they started seeing these crazy animals they'd never seen before. Uh, it's important to say they didn't discover anything. <laughs> yeah, it's very important to say that. They were just the first white guys to record it for science. Yeah. Um, but prairie dogs and elk and buffalo by the tens of thousands, uh, antelope, all kinds of things to them that were just these weird animals. Um, they actually sent a live prairie dog back to Jefferson, which is pretty neat. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and it made it all the way. Uh, grizzly bears, they encountered those for the first time on this expedition? Yeah, they were warned of the grizzly by the uh, Indians, and they were like, we, we've hunted brown bear and black bear. Right. We, we, we know what we're talking about with bear. <laughs> and then they were kind of like, holy crap. Like yeah. In their journals, they were like, I've never seen anything like this. It took 10 shots, and we almost died. And yeah. the grizzly bears to be reckoned with. Lewis said something like, um, I'd rather fight two Indians than one grizzly bear. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are in early June. Uh, they reached the point where the Missouri divided that they didn't, they weren't told about this uh, fork. So they're like, huh. Right. What should we do here? It went in equal parts, north and south. Yeah, I mean, it was like a, a hardcore left and right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hardcore. There <laughs> was uh, basically everyone in the party agreed on one direction except Lewis and Clark. They were like, we are, we're old school, we like sync." Yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, despite the fact that everyone disagreed, they followed them. And that just shows like how united they were. They were like, you know what? We don't think you guys are right, but we're going to follow you because you are our captains. Right. And we want to see your faces when you realize you're wrong. <laughs> Which actually would happen. But it wouldn't lead to like eating each other like the Donner Party. No, uh-uh. Um, so they, they keep moseying along, and they're doing pretty well. They Apparently, they got to a point where um, Clark looked down one day. I think it was Clark. It was possibly Lewis, too. It was Lewis. And he realized that a little stream at his feet was running west, and he realized that they just crossed the Continental Divide. Yeah, that was the mouth of the Missouri that they were literally straddling with yeah. their feet. Yeah, and they... Uh, that meant that now they had just left the Missouri and were going to hook up. First, they went on to the Snake River, but that would take them to the Columbia River, which, by their reckoning, would take them to the Pacific Ocean. So they'd made it like a substantial amount of, of distance. Yeah, that was a depressing moment, <laughs> though, for Lewis because he, he thought when he reached that ridge that he would look and see just downhill to the ocean. Yeah. And what he saw was... Rocky Mountains. Nevada. Yeah, and he was like, oh, man, this is not going to be very easy. No. We didn't know about the Rocky Mountains. No, and even uh, even still when they finally do think that they see the ocean, they still were 25 miles away from it when they finally get to that point. Yeah, which we'll get to. Oh, sorry. That's right. <laughs> uh, so what they ended up doing, they made a mistake because there was a, a, a shortcut they could have taken. Oh, really? That would have taken four days, and instead they had to go work their way around the Great Falls of Montana, which took uh, 53 days of portage, Ah, uneasy portage. Yeah, because this portage was like carrying these boats. Yeah. But also these guys were wearing like moccasins and stuff, and they had a huge problem with prickly pear. Yeah. 
which would just go right through your moccasin. And it's basically like stepping on nails the whole time while you're carrying a, a very heavy boat. Yeah, and all your supplies. Right. Whiskey and, you know, food. Yeah. Salt. Uh, so on July 25th, they arrived at another fork, uh, three forks. They named them the Gallatin for the Secretary of Treasury, the Madison for the Secretary of State, and the Jefferson, and decided to follow the Jefferson because... Uh, there was more to it, I think. Yeah, and I think they were like, this is the one that is going to head west. Right. So they follow that. I think at this point or either right before or right after, they they um, meet up with the Shoshone. Have they met the Shoshone yet? Uh, well, at this point, Lewis went off by himself um, and a couple of more people to find the Shoshone. Including Sacagawea, right? Or no, she wasn't there yet. I don't think she was there yet. Okay. But uh, he did find them. and um, He basically said, hey. We come in peace. We have a camp back here. Yeah. We want you to come hang out at. Well, they were in bad shape, apparently, the Shoshone were. Oh, they were? Yeah, they were pretty worse for the wear and very docile as a result. Um, so he met these women and children and, and told them all that stuff. And they came back and hung out with them. And at camp, Sacagawea recognized one of the women. Yeah. That uh, Clark, was it Clark or Lewis? Uh, I think at this point it was both. Who the, who they came back with and said, hey, we found some Shoshone. And she said, hey, that's actually my BFF from first grade. Yeah. Because remember, Sacagawea had been um, kidnapped and sold. Yeah. So there were still members of her tribe living around the Rockies, and um, she actually met up with them. And with her brother, who was now chief. Yes. And she was like, you're chief? And he went, you know it, little sister. Yeah. And he went, you're married to a French trapper? She's like, that guy? Not really. He yeah. bought me. <laughs> uh, which is not funny at all. <laughs> you know? Um, so then they proceeded across the Continental Divide to the main village with the Shoshones and uh, hired on a tour guide, Old Toby, <laughs> which is a great name yeah. for an Indian tour guide. Sure. And said, Toby said, you know, I'll lead you through these mountains. But we're going to need some horses to eat because it's going to be rough. <laughs> And to travel with. Right, but this is where they were really eating a lot of horse meat. Yeah, the Bitterroot Mountains. It was pretty rough through Montana and Idaho. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was when, you know, their spirits were never broken, but that's when they were dampened for sure. So um, when they make it through the Bitterroot, I don't remember why they did or where, but there was a point where they said, we can't use these horses anymore. I guess it's when they got onto the Columbia River, right? Well, maybe. Is this where they were eating salmon and the salmon was making them sick? Yeah, so they come to a Nez Pierce village with old Toby, I believe, at, at the lead. Yeah. And um, they're celebrated, welcomed, they throw a feast for him, and it makes everybody violently ill in the expedition. Yeah, they're like, this salmon is awful. <laughs> yeah, or these roots or whatever. I'll bet it was the roots that got them. Yeah, I think it was. Um, so I, every, apparently everyone recovered. Um but they say, okay, well, here's the Columbia River. We can't really use these horses anymore. Uh, I think one of the things that's very much overlooked in the history of this expedition is just how much the Corps of Discovery relied on friendly tribes. So, like, when they hit the Columbia River, they said, hey, Shoshone, or no, Nez Pierce friends, yeah. will you watch our horses for us? And then Nez Pierce said, yes. Yeah. You guys go to the Pacific Ocean. When you come back, we'll have your horses. Go ahead and brand them so you know which ones are yours. And they did. Yeah. They left their horses with the Nez Pierce. Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of the 
best case scenario story for most of the trip. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, and that is actually too where they were uh, where they traded for dog to eat, which was one of the only disappointing parts of the story for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, that and what happened to York. All right, so at this point it's uh, mid October. Yeah. They floated down to uh, the Great Falls of the Columbia, which it, is now Salilo Falls. And think about how much easier it was at this point. Like they're not going upstream any longer. They get yeah. to go with the current. True, but it was the Oregon Territory, so they were getting rained on constantly. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was pretty brutal conditions. Um, but you're right. It wasn't like slugging through in the summertime, right? pulling that boat upstream. Stepping on prickly pear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this is where, on November 7th, they thought that they saw the ocean. Uh, it was actually a bay about 25 miles inland. And one of them said, ocean in view, O-C-I-N. I love the ocean, O-T-E-A-N. <laughs> in this, this same paragraph, they misspelled ocean tw- two different ways. Give them a break. Come on. Uh, finally, 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 by mid-November, they strode upon the sands of the Pacific. And this is the really sad part is that Merriweather called it tempestuous and horrible. Like, he wasn't like, oh, we made it. He was He was depressed, and he was like, this isn't like the Atlantic Ocean. This is rocky and beating us with waves. Like, the Oregon coast is rough. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't cotton to it. Um, <laughs> but what he did cotton to was being an accurate dude. Uh-huh. By dead reckoning, over the course of over 4,100 miles, he was only off by 40 miles. Wow. In charting this this ride. That is pretty amazing. It's pretty remarkable. So, uh, Sakagawea, um, one of the reasons she signed on, aside from being a slave of to her husband who signed her on, yeah. um, was that she wanted to see the Pacific. She'd heard about the Great Waters. Oh, yeah? And, yeah. And so when they were getting closer, um, she petitioned Lewis and Clark saying, like, there's no way you can't let me not come with you to see the Pacific Ocean itself. Right. And they let her come along. They had word from some local tribe, I'm not sure which one it was, that there was a monstrous fish on the beach and Lewis and Clark were like, I bet they're talking about a whale. We should go get some blubber. And yeah. Sakagawea's like, I'm there. I'm coming with you. <laughs> so they took her along, and they all got to go see the uh, Pacific Ocean. And it was close a whale. And personal that first time. Yeah, they got a bunch of blubber and yeah. oil and stuff from it. Um, and it died first. So you can keep liking Lewis and Clark. <laughs> um, so uh, they camped there on the Pacific for a full four months. Yeah, basically they were trying to two things. They were trying to decide what to do, and they were – Technically, they were waiting for a boat to come by because they had a letter of credit from Jefferson that said, right. hey, if you're a boat, give these people a ride back and we'll pay you like good money. Right. I read that they never seriously thought that they were going to take a boat back. Well, that was the deal is technically they were supposed to be waiting for a boat. What they were really doing was just sort of weighing their options as to how best to go back and right. win. And this is the really cool part. They put it to a vote. They did put it to a vote. Um, and the, it was a vote that included an African-American and a woman yep. and a Native American. Yeah. And, and it was a who Sacagawea and York, both had, both their votes were given equal weight to everybody else's. Yeah, it was very cool. where to camp, set up camp for the winter. Yeah, so they uh, elected to cross the river to the south um, where they were informed that there was elk and deer. You can hole up here. You can hunt all winter. And they did. And prepare yourself for the return journey home. 
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So here we are at Fort Clatsop, That's Oregon. In Oregon, yeah. Named after the Clatsop tribe. They were hunting. They were storing up. They were getting their provisions in order, getting ready to go back. And they hauled butt on the way back. Uh, they did. Yeah. You know how it is. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, it doesn't take as long because now you know how long it's going to take. Yeah, and they weren't stopping to record everything. They did actually They're split like, up. They're dogs. We've already seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been there. Um, but the group wasn't as happy. Uh, they were irritable, especially Lewis. He kind of fell into a depression on the way home. He didn't. Did he come out of it at all while they were at the Pacific, or did it just stick the whole time? Well, I mean, I think it was up and down. Basically, they believe when he was not recording in his journal, he was depressed. Oh, okay. Um, but he is... <laughs> remarkable in that he soldiered on like this is a manic depressive who was still like getting up every day and doing this right and like the worst thing he did was not journal right you know um actually the worst thing he did was on the way back he stole a canoe at one point which is really out of character and he was described as kind of like cracking at the seams at this point which is really sad so uh on march 23rd 1806 they started back up the columbia with these new canoes uh, bartered for some horses and camped with the Nez Pierce for a month. And no, then, they got their horses back from the Nez Pierce. Those horses, that those were theirs, the ones they branded Well, no, this is before the they Nez got Pierce. back there oh, okay. to the Nez Pierce. They bartered for some horses and then eventually hooked back with the Nez Pierce and camped for like a month. And got their horses back. And got their horses back. <laughs> I think that's your favorite part of the story. I think it's cool. They're it like, is. hey, guys, will you hang on to this for? They also sunk their canoes at a certain point and I then that was neat. went back and got those. Yeah, to keep, keep the canoes from being sent down river they just sunk them yeah and then they came back and got them that's pretty cool 
So they basically retraced their trail through the bitter roots. Um, only one retrograde march in the entire journey, which means you have to double back, basically, yeah. which is in itself pretty remarkable. Uh, and then on July 3rd, 1806, they separated um, back where they were at that original shortcut that they should have taken and said, hey, let's send off some different factions here and do a little bit more exploring right. and a little bit more recording of things. And They're so, like, we, we slacked off. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they were kind of, like I said, they were hauling butt on the way home. Yeah. Um, this is where Lewis, uh, where they ran into their first kind of violent episode with the Blackfeet Indians. And um, a dude shot at Lewis. He shot back, hit the guy in the belly. Another guy stabbed a Blackfeet Indian. Or is it a Blackfoot Indian? I think Blackfoot. Okay. And um, they rode away like the, the Blackfeet did, but two of them died. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was sad. They had gone all that way without violence, and they finally kind of had to. Yeah. Their hand was forced, essentially. Uh, Chuck, also, um, there was another shooting that took place during this period, but this one was accidental. Oh, yeah. Um, Lewis was actually shot when he was mistaken for an elk yeah. while he was out hunting with a member of the expedition, Pierre Cruzette. And uh, Cruzat, um didn't fess up to it immediately. He he was like, oh, I guess me. some some Indians. It must have been those Blackfeet. Yeah. And uh, finally, when they searched the area and found no sign of Blackfeet, Cruzat was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought you were an elk. I'm blind in one eye. Don't forget. Yeah, but I'm the fiddle player. And everybody loves me. Yeah, exactly. And Lewis was like, we'll just let it go. And apparently was really in a lot of pain. It hit him in I'm the sure. thigh. And like he had a very long and difficult recovery. For the rest of the time. But it was about this time when everybody came back together. Yeah, and this, you know, we're sort of simplifying this part of the story, but they eventually did all meet back up um, pretty remarkably. Like, I think the story is one of them rounded a bin, and right as they did that, the others were rounding the bin, and they were like, oh, hey, it's you. <laughs> They're like, it's you. <laughs> Out here in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so they eventually went back to the Mandan villages. That is where the Charbonneau family... Um, left the expedition, um, and that is where Private John Coulter, who was one of the men, said, you know what, uh, St. Louis, like, I didn't like it there. I really like it out here. Can I, can I go back? And they're like, sure, man. Go, go west, young man. <laughs> exactly. And he did so. He did. He, he was going to um, work with some French trappers. Yeah. And they had a following up pretty quickly after. And then this guy, Coulter, yeah. He went off on his own, and they think he was the first white person to enter what's now Yellowstone Park. And he was oh, wow. he was the first to recount the geysers. And even um, still, there's part of it called Coulter's Hell. Oh, cool. The geyser area of Yellowstone. Very cool. Uh, so reportedly, the only thing they did not run out of on the way home was powder, lead, paper, and ink. Wow. Or at least that's what Ken Burns says. You know how they put a little cherry on top of everything. <laughs> right. Uh, finally, in September... Uh, of 1806, on the 23rd, they arrived victorious in St. Louis, and the river was lined with people cheering for them, shooting their guns in the air. And, like, we should point out, everyone thought they were dead. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, like, they were sending messages back in Prairie Dogs, but then at a certain point, that just wasn't possible. Right. So even Jefferson had given up hope. They'd been like, they've been gone for two and a half years. Yeah. Like, we're not going to hear from Lewis and Clark again. And then they did. And then they did. And um, covered about 8,000 miles over two years, four months, and nine days. Discovered, I'm sorry, not discovered. Saw. Recorded 122 animals that they had never seen. 
178 plants that they had never seen and did a pretty darn good job of cartographing. <laughs> right. Cartographing? Is that even a word? Yeah, I think it is. Drawing maps. <laughs> um, that was great. Describing the Rocky Mountains, and Jeffrey was like, Rocky Mountains? Wait, what, I have mountains now? What are those? And they were like, they're snow-capped, even in the summer. And they were, you know, they had never seen any of this. They were blown away. So um, after this, uh, Clark sets up shop in St. Louis. Yeah, they doubled everyone's pay, which was nice, and we, gave everyone a bunch of land. Right. You, they, you got, I think, 320 acres. Yeah, and, Lewis um, and Clark got 1,600 each, but right. the rest of the guys got like 320. Almost the rest. Two, uh. <laughs> two people did not get any land or any money, and that was Sacagawea and York. Yeah. Um, which sucks. Yeah, and apparently York had a difficult reentry into slavery. I can imagine so. Could think about like, <laughs> yeah. like living like that and then going back to being a slave. Yeah, and so he asked um, Clark for his freedom. He was like, I know I don't get land and all this stuff, but how about my freedom? And Clark was like, no. <laughs> and not only that, he wrote his brother a letter and said, you know, York is being kind of uppity since he got back. He's not... He's not being a good slave, and he's having trouble, and uh, so I had to beat him. <laughs> no. Yeah, that was, that was the one time where I was like, oh, man. Yeah, that's pretty awful. This was, like, really headed in the good direction, and all that had to happen was he could have just said, yes, yes you are free, and then it would have been the best story ever. Man, that's that's really awful. I had no idea about that. Yeah, and then there were, there were various accounts that he might have been freed a few years later or perhaps escaped. No one is quite for sure, even though... I've noticed Ken Burns does a lot of factual stating of things that are disputed. Oh, yeah? Like he just said straight up that he was uh, freed five years later. And I read up on it and people were like, oh, maybe not. Huh. Ken so. Burns just does whatever his haircut tells him to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sucker for those things, though. I mean, I know a lot of documentary filmmakers kind of poo-poo him. Oh, but yeah. Well, I mean, I like he it. takes a certain interpretation and that's that. Exactly. Like you said. Uh, so wow, Lewis, wait, hold on. I'm really disappointed in Clark. I know that stinks. What do you want me to do? I don't know. It is very. I sad, guess though. talk about Lewis. Yeah, I mean Clark went on. We should say to have like a very successful rest of his career. Well, hold on. You want a bright side? Okay. Bill Clinton in 2001 uh, gave a posthumous um, rank as sergeant in the army to York. Oh, great! So that's kind of nice and um way to go clinton today there are some statues commemorating york one in louisville mm -hmm. kentucky uh i think there's one at lewis and clark college in portland in kansas city there's one nice. so he's he's definitely been smiled upon historically as like a great man and adventurer great by everyone but william clark <laughs> yeah and his family who was like no <laughs> so lewis had some difficulties upon returning home he was made governor, appointed governor, of the Upper Louisiana Territory, and things started out well. But then he kind of got into financial trouble. Uh, I think his territory got into financial trouble, right? Yeah, and, and he, he wasn't was going to Washington. He wasn't able to complete. The big thing was that he wasn't able to complete what he was supposed to do, which is come back and write about the whole thing. Yeah, those weren't published until 1814, which yeah. is uh, eight years after they returned, and even then they were published after his death. Yeah. So, so he, was, he was, by all accounts, pretty depressed. He was on his way to Washington, supposedly, to, to plead for more money for the territory. Yeah, to kind of, he had been called out on some finances, and he wanted to go clear that up. And supposedly he had some, some of his uh, journals 
that he wanted to turn in. Oh, gotcha. It's like, here, I've got this. Right. And he fell out of favor a little bit with Jefferson because of all that, which is, you know, kind of stinks. It did. It is because he was groomed by Jefferson. It was a family friend. Yeah. Like, they were friends. So, um, Lewis, I guess, is on his way to Washington. He's following the Natchez Trail. Natchez Trace. Yeah. And uh, he stops in Tennessee at a place called the Grinders Inn. Yeah, near Nashville. And that's where he died. He was he was found, well, apparently crawling toward the innkeeper's wife, shot, bleeding, asking for water, and she just, like, screamed and ran away. Yeah, and this is another disputed thing. Was he killed or did he commit suicide? Uh, if you Google death of Meriwether Lewis, it comes up suicide, but it is definitely in dispute. Yeah, and Ken Burns straight up said he killed himself, and it was very sad. Well, the reason why it's in dispute is because he was shot in the abdomen and in the head. Yeah, he was the- also an expert <laughs> marksman. Yeah, and the suicide people, I think, reckon that back then with guns, like if you really wanted to do it, you would point one at your chest and one at your head and squeeze at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, like I hadn't boom. heard that. Yeah. Um, but, but other I mean, people like, said he was murdered for money and what were you going to say? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> uh, sadly, even though this story had a happy ending, it was sort of the beginning of the end of the American Indian. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty big thing to point out. Yeah. There was a great quote from one of the people in the documentary. It said they left as students, came back as teachers. And sadly, America failed to learn the lessons that they had brought back with them. Because if everything had gone the way of Lewis and Clark, it would have been awesome. They were basically like, hey, you got the great father, like we said, we're going to live in harmony. And they believed him. And they believed themselves. You know, they weren't like pulling one over on him. Yeah. Uh, and it's just sad that it went down a different way from that point forward, basically. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There was one brief moment when it could have gone a different way. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. But Clark and Lewis also, I guess, kind of paved the way for the idea of manifest destiny. True. Although that wasn't coined until about 40 years after the expedition. They are always held up as this idea. And this is an idea that people subscribe to for a very long time. Yeah. That America was destined to take up the area between the Pacific and the Atlantic. It was our destiny. Yeah. And therefore, anything that stood in our way should just fall before us as we swept outward toward the Pacific Ocean. The end justifies the means. And Lewis and Clark was like, look, they're, they're an example of that. Yeah. Uh, Clark eventually died of natural causes in 1838. Most of the rest of the party sort of just faded into history. Um, uh, Jean-Baptiste? Well, yeah, he didn't. He became like a, like a, a courtesan, not a courtesan, that'd be a lady. A courtier, right? In One Europe? of the two, yeah. Uh, with he went the to Ger- Europe. And he was friends with a German prince. Oh, a German prince? Prince Wilhelm. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, I think the oldest survivor lived to be 99, lived all the way to the Civil War. Oh, yeah. And at the age of 90, volunteered to fight for the Union. <laughs> and I don't know if they took him up on it or if they were just like, we get it, you're a legend, but right. we're, we got this. Yeah. So who knows? So that's the Lewis and Clark expedition, the Corps of Discoveries. The dog lived. The baby lived. Yeah, the dog made it all the way. They only lost one person on the entire trip, Charles Floyd, and he died early on of what they believe was probably appendicitis. Yep, burst appendix. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. They didn't have to eat each other. No. They didn't even eat the guy who died of the burst appendix. No, just dog and horse. Yep. 
Uh, if you, you got anything else? Nope. If you want to learn more about Chuck's favorite story from American history, you can type in Lewis and Clark in the search bar at How Stuff Works. And since I said search bar, it means it's time for listener mail. I am going to call this uh, diplomatic immunity. Hey guys, last week the Dutch police arrested the Russian diplomat Dmitry Borodin in his home. They were called in by concerned neighbors because the diplomat was drunk, hitting his kids, dragging them by their hair through the house. The police arrived as uh, and was witness to the brutality against the children and also established that Mr. Borodin was extremely drunk. They had no choice but to arrest him to protect the children from further abuse. Immediately, the Russian government came into action and Putin... The devil incarnate, if you ask me, <laughs> this is from Jasper, demanded his release and apologies from the Netherlands. Uh, that same afternoon, I started listening to the latest stuff you should know. Lo and behold, it was about diplomatic immunity. As the podcast drew to a close, I received a news update on my phone that the Dutch government had apologized to the Russians for the arrest because it violated the Treaty of Vienna. Immunity won out again. Uh, since then, UNICEF has issued a statement that the well-being of the children should be more important than diplomatic immunity. Maybe something will finally change? Probably not. Personally, I hope we declare uh, Borodin persona non grata, but that seems unlikely. Anyway, wanted to share this actuality of your podcast with you. Uh, it's pretty weird that it happened when it did, and luckily it wasn't about floods or earthquakes. And that is from Jasper in Amsterdam, one of my favorite cities. Nice. Thanks a lot, Jasper. That's yeah. pretty interesting. I love it when things happen like simpatico like that. Yeah, confluence. Yeah. Um, well, if you have a, a confluence email you want to send us, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook. We have a page at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. We have a Twitter handle. We're verified now. It's pretty awesome. Uh, that's SYSK Podcast. And you can join us at our good old home on the web. It's called StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Fill the grill and fire up the party. Get the Weber Sear Wood Pellet Grill. Smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. Go from low and slow on smoke boost mode at 180 degrees all the way to high heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame and food will look as good as it tastes. This grill is hot in 15 minutes and cleanup is easy. You'll cook on two levels at the same time, so you can make enough for everyone. And you can add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert. So get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.